Hello and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another extremely exciting guest on the podcast today. Our first guest outside the Ronnie Dog Media TFA family since Bodo Glimpse head of physical performance, Michael Brown, was on the podcast back in November before the World Cup began. It seems like a lifetime ago, and interestingly, as of recording today, Michael has taken up the same role but with the San Jose Earthquakes in the MLS, which is incredible. So congratulations to Michael on that. Nonetheless, we have a force on the podcast as well today in that our guest specializes in goalkeeper performance and is undoubtedly the king of goalkeeping analysis on Twitter. If you're in the analytics sphere on the board app, you've certainly heard of him. And that man is Dr. John Harrison, the head of data science at goalkeeper.com and a holder of a PhD in astronomy from the University of Cambridge. A very smart man indeed. John is doing some wonderful work for goalkeeper analytics and changing how many see the lonely, lonely position. Bringing new data to the table to determine goalkeeper performances, which has seen him featured on massive platforms such as The Athletic and Sky Sports. Before we get into it, please don't forget to give the podcast a rating. Five stars, hopefully, if you learned something and enjoyed the show, even if you hate me. That's fine. I love you. So please, please rate the podcast five stars. Now, without further ado, I'll shut up and go speak to John. John, hello. How are you? How was your Christmas break? Hey, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm great. Yeah, it was nice, nice relaxing break. And then now back to Premier League game after Premier League game, it seems. Are you glad that the, the club football is back now as opposed to, I suppose, the, the daily slogger of international games? Yeah, no, yeah, I'm glad. I've I've missed it, especially the the intensity of, of some mm. of the recent games we've seen. But yeah, to be honest, I think I could have done with a longer break. But you know, football's always relentless, <laughs> especially these days when UEFA and FIFA want so many games crammed into a season. Yeah. So no, it's all good. It's all good. I think I think when you work in football as well, you literally get Christmas Day. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe Christmas Eve night if you're lucky. But Christmas Day, anyway, is the only day you really get off. It's it's so relentless now. You're right. It's it's genuinely um, incredible. But obviously. I, I I mentioned this to you before over DM, but I actually first heard of you when I was scouting Twitter. I was I was looking for someone to help me with a scout report I was writing for the TFA website on uh, Christopher Clayson, who was Valerenga's keeper at the time. Obviously, he's gone to Leeds United now. He's back up to Ilya Melia, I believe. I mistakenly picked up Christopher Clayson because I believed he was like a defender or a midfielder. And when it was in there, because it's like a sheet on TFA and I saw his name, I was like, yeah, I'll take that. Because Scout Report, I like Scout Reports. I wanted to do something on him. And I found that he was a goalkeeper. And then I started shaking. I was like, I have <laughs> absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. So I scouted Twitter. I found your page. That was the summer 2021. I think it was like, actually, I used your thread um, back in June 2020. It was, I believe the fronting was Sar versus Allison, maybe. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 1v1s. Yeah, the 1v1s thread. Yeah, yeah. And it was an amazing thread, so that's how I I, um, I helped see what techniques were good in 1v1 situations, obviously, helping with the beach. And I think it turned out okay in the end. Probably not amazing, but I, I think I did, I did a decent um, justice to the piece. I want to start, though, with a bit of backstory to how you got interested yeah. in goalkeeping and goalkeeper analysis especially. I love finding out how people fell in love with different parts of the sport. And obviously, I know you you, you played at a decent level at university with University yeah. of Cambridge, I believe. Yeah. Talk to me about yeah, exactly. how yeah, yeah. you got into the analysis side of that. Yeah, so, well, firstly, yeah, I played, played football all my life. Um, started quite late, though. I've, I've always played in played in goal. I think I started at about age 
13-ish, so too late for like academy football, but just just played my local teams at home. And then, yes, yeah, started taking it really seriously. Um, about two years before I went to uni, started playing, I went and played men's at, at 16. I started playing full men's football on a, on a Saturday. So that was more serious, but still not a particularly high level. Um, but then once I got to Cambridge to uni, I was like, okay, I want to take it seriously, try and play first team, try and do all that. And I managed to do that, which was, which was great. Um, yeah, probably highlights there were we went to the University World Cup in, in Beijing and that was that was very fun. Um, wow. Did 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 well there. Got to play against some very good players. Uh, had a guy who was a, a bronze on FIFA score against me. That's, <laughs> that's a claim to fame. <laughs> the, the, the German team we played against, some of their lads played Bundesliga 2 yeah. um, as well as playing for their uni. Because it's a bit like, I don't know if you know, but Cardiff Met in in, in mm. the English Bucks yeah. League, who, who we played with, with Cambridge Uni, they would also have a team in the Welsh Premier Division. So they once played Europa League. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the teams are slightly different. They don't always play exactly the same players, but um, that's how that's how fun little things like that can happen. But yeah, so I, I really enjoyed football. Played in goal to a, to a decent standard. And it basically just struck me at one point, I was doing my PhD in astrophysics at, at Cambridge and I was doing loads of statistical analysis and things like that. And I thought, just wait, why has no one done use these sort of mathematical techniques on goalkeepers in football? Mm-hmm. Because I, when I watch lots of podcasts and videos and just, consumed basically football content a lot of the, the sort of the stats revolution going on when I was doing my PhD so between like 2015 and 2020 kind of kind of time and everyone was always saying oh goalkeepers are really hard to analyze the statistics are really poor for them and just from my day-to-day playing I was always like just wait this should be so easy because like mm-hmm. if you're a center mid and you get the ball like realistically to know that situation inside out you need the position of every player you need to know how much pressure's on the ball you need to know what way they're facing all of that but for a goalkeeper shots are actually pretty similar like once you know certain characteristics of the shot like have you got a defender in front of you blocking your Mm. view like what's the distance of the shot what's the angle and then how fast is the shot and what's its trajectory really that's like you can get very similar shots and bucket them together so I thought why has no one sort of done this why are we still looking at clean sheets and goals conceded and number of claims or whatever when there could be so much interesting stuff you could do so I sort of just started basically by combining my two passions. So my, my stats and math stuff from my undergraduate degree and then master's and, and PhD at Cambridge with just the football I was playing. And that's mm-hmm. where I did, like you mentioned before, that 1v1 project was just something I did during my PhD where I was like, I was training, I think we trained four times a week, I think. So I was, I was, I was training most days. And then on the Tuesdays and Thursdays, I wasn't training. I was thinking about my sessions and I was going back and being like, just wait surely there's a physical optimum time when you should rush out and when you shouldn't Mm -hmm. rush out because just from thinking about it if there's a shot 25 yards out you have no need to leave your line like even if we were doing a shooting drill and I had no defenders in front of me I'd be like you're not going to beat me from 25 yards unless you put it right in the top corner so there's no point me rushing out and letting you dribble around me or chip over me or side foot it past me you've got to smash it from that range if you're going to want to beat me and then similarly if you're doing a shooting drill and the player was five yards out it's like, I can't stay on my line here and try and react. You could roll it at like five mile an hour in the corner mm. and it would still be difficult for me to full stretch dive and get there. So I, it became obvious at that point, you have to come out and smash the striker and try and get something on the ball. So I just thought, why don't you use Premier League data? Why don't I get video footage of all the Premier League um, games and one-on-ones and try and see what that line actually is? Because I was like, it's obviously further out than five yards and closer mm. than like 25 yards, but where is it roughly? And so that was my sort of first foray into it. And that was super fun. We found eventually it was about 14 yards, which was a little bit 
I guess, closer than I expected. I expected maybe it'd be like 15, 16 yards. Mm. So once they're in the box, you should engage. But actually, I found kind of interestingly, actually, you don't really need to engage even if they're in the box. It's once they're closer than about 13, 14 yards that then you need to rush out because your reaction time won't be enough. So yeah, once I did that, I was sort of hooked. And (laughs) then from then on, I went on to complete my PhD, I think a year or two after that thread. And then I was basically, maybe it was just a year after I was basically then trying just to get a job in football, to get a job doing goalkeeper analysis, which mm. luckily I've managed to do now with um, a company I helped found, uh, goalkeeper.com and goalkeeper XG. And hopefully we'll be the people who finally do revolutionise goalkeeper stats so people don't have to just stick with clean sheets and goals conceded and, and, and whatever we're used to. Well, it, you know, I'm sure you'll be humble about this, but I, I, I do believe you are revolution. Or, or... <laughs> revolutionizing that I suppose that side of the game because you spoke about the stats revolution of football which started yeah it was roughly around the 2010s in the, the mid 2010s yeah. but it started in I think 2012 and XG obviously became um well if it was born essentially I, I think, believe yeah. I believe it was Sam Green from Opta I, I could be wrong yeah. on that but I believe it was Sam Green from, from Opta started the XG kind of he, exactly he bears the XG and then but goalkeeping analysis took so and I mean, it's, I suppose it still is quite in its early stages, but it it's almost been neglected so much because, and look, I fall I fall into this trap too, so I'm not going to sit here and be arrogant <laughs> and pretend I don't. You know, you watch pundits on TV and a goalkeeper will, the shot will go in the near post and automatically it's their fault or, you know, but it comes from people who, for one, haven't really played in goal. And it's not that you have to, but I just feel it's such a... Um, it's almost mundane and it's almost just... Yeah, there's no extra flavour. It's just yeah. like, to, to be honest, a near post goal could be the goalkeeper's fault, right? But then you've, yeah. got, you've got to add that extra, like you say, that extra like flavour on top and be like, ah, oh, the goalkeeper's gone with his hand instead of his foot. Yeah. And that was so quick that actually he was never going to get a hand down. He'll be disappointed with that. Yeah. That's just already so much better than just, he shouldn't be beating his near post. Because yeah. it could be like one of those Aguero near post top corner ones. Like mm-hmm. I think Alisson conceded a few times a few years back. I remember like, it was actually the game where they, they basically won the league off because they ended yeah. up, because of that win, yeah. they won by a point. And then for that one, there's no real question there. You, you can just be like, oh, Aguero's absolutely blasted past him in yeah. the only spot he could beat him or something. And you don't need to, yeah, it's one of those things. And it's one of the things that does annoy me, I guess, a little bit about goalkeeper punditry is sometimes they are right. Like sometimes you shouldn't be beaten in that situation. But like you say, you've just got to add that extra, the reasoning why, explain yeah. to the viewers and educate the viewers because mm-hmm. at the moment people would go out and just because of what they hear, they just assume you should you yeah. should never be in a near post or you should assume that you should never punch across mm-hmm. in that situation. You should always catch it or whatever. So I think, yeah, it's definitely something that's lacking. And, and it's something we are trying to do at goalkeeper.com to try and publicize this. You can't, goalkeepers are wrong. We don't want to go from the other end of the spectrum and be like, you can never say anything negative yeah. about a goalkeeper because that's not true. But it's much more interesting to evaluate the why mm. than it is to just bl- make blanket statements. And it's, yeah, it's all about informing people as to why goalkeepers made a mistake there or that's... why they made such a good save rather yeah. than just saying, what a save by the keeper. How's yeah. he done that? Be like, what a save by the keeper? He's done that because of X, mm. Y, Z. Like, yeah. And it is quite. It, it, well, it probably still is to a certain extent, like so black and white. And it was almost like before XG became mainstream. And obviously there is still pushback on XG and there's always yep. pushback on stats from um, people who I call football purists, right or wrongly, that don't like the science part of football. They were rather the, the pure 
emotional artistic side of football but with xg it was so you know as center forwards running through on goal and he was kind of leaning towards the right of the box you take a shot and you say oh he has to score but then you look at now you literally have the data and you can yeah. say oh it's a 40 percent or whatever yeah. so actually like okay, and especially, it was a big chance exactly. but it wasn't like has to score yeah. every time yeah and if he has over the course of a season an xg of 40.5 and he scored 20 goals you look at that and go well yeah okay he's yeah, he's had a mess. massively. Yeah. <laughs> he's massively underperformed, and is you know in front of goal. But at least we have those stats now to help us with goalkeepers. We didn't, which is why I find it so interesting now that you, you know yourself and obviously with, with goalkeeper.com, you're trying to change that narrative. And and I, I do love that as well because it's so it seems so obvious. Why haven't we got this? Why are we still sitting and look again? I'm not going to name broadcasters or pundits, but why are they sitting yeah. there? after playing midfield the whole lives and they're telling me that a goalkeeper's poor. And I just take the word for it because I've no... Yeah, yeah, yeah no, exactly. You know, why, 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 why wouldn't I? They're the, I suppose, the paid professionals. Why wouldn't I take the word for it that David De Gea shouldn't get beaten as near post when in fact yeah. maybe yeah. Statistic, statistically it was, you know, as you said, say an Aguero shot, which yeah. is just pinpoint top corner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, could you explain your formula then a little bit? Uh, maybe... Uh, yeah, in, so, in layman's terms, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> for no, myself, no, yeah, yeah. For myself at least. Um, yeah, to, so determine goalkeeper's position, unfortunately, because I saw your tweet last night as well about De Gea and when he yep. kind of closed the angle down, it went from, uh, I, I believe it was like twenty percent. It was. I took a massive leap up. It was incredible. Yeah, no, indeed. So yeah, the one was we can start with that one last night, and then I can go into mm-hmm. some of the the basic bits of how our model at goalkeeper XG all all, all works. Um, but yeah, basically last night um, there was a chance. I think it was like in the last minute. Um, and Anthony Jade, Jade and Anthony, yeah, 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 yeah. Jade and Anthony, not Man United's Anthony. No. <laughs> but yeah, but Bournemouth's uh, Anthony got in uh, in behind Man United's defence. And some people might have looked at this and been like, "That's a bit weird." So De Gea, instead of sort of rushing out and going forwards, he just sort of moved backwards two steps and just held his position because, as we discussed before, with the one on ones, Anthony was in one on one, but he was like, I don't know, I think he's about. 10 yards to the side of the goal and like maybe 15, 16 yards. So he was inside the box, but he wasn't particularly close. And De Gea just held deep and was like, go on then beat me. It allowed Lindelof to come and slide in behind him, which obviously puts him off. And then I think Anthony killed a shot. De Gea gets across top hand, tips it away. Um, and it's one of those on the replay, you can be like, oh, that looked kind of comfortable and kind of easy. But as he said, what we can do with our model is, well, we can look at the, what's the goal probability when Anthony received the ball. And we find that it's about 37%. And then we can calculate, okay, well, what's the goal probability once De Gea decides not to rush out? Because we, what we can do is we can look up in the Premier League of the last five years, when the ball was received in that area after a through ball, how often does the keeper rush out? How often do they stay deep, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, when, once you do that, you see that the goal probability drops to 16%. So it basically halves. So De Gea's decision, when people might say, I wasn't listening to the commentary of the game last night, but when I just had it on in silent watching the darts as well. Um, but... Um, yeah, when, when when that happens, you can instantly say, oh, well, that was a pretty comfortable save by De Gea. But actually now with the statistics, you can look and be like, well, no, he made that easy for himself. Mm-hmm. If Edison or another goalkeeper, I pick Edison because he's probably one of the best goalkeepers at close range one-on-ones because he's so quick at rushing out. But he's also one of the worst at these types of situations because he always wants to rush out. He wants to be on the front foot when he doesn't need to be. So for me, if, if Edison faced this situation, very likely he would have come flying out. John Stones would be the Lindelof or whatever equivalent, uh, wouldn't be able to get near to the ball. Um, 
So there'd be no pressure put on the ball by the defender because there just wouldn't be time to close it down. Edison would come flying out, spread, and then that curling shot would go over his shoulder and everyone would be like, oh, what a finish. And it's like, yes, it was a, a good finish, but the goalkeeper could have dropped the probability massively by, by staying deep. So that, yeah, that was a nice little example. And it sort of highlights the main way our models at Goalkeeper XG work, and that's using historic data and calculating goal probabilities, basically just seeing like how often does this situation result in a goal before and after the goalkeepers do things. So we don't just do shot stopping, but for shot stopping, for example, this, this my classic one that I use is there's a person 30 yards out, there's a set defense in front of them, they scuff a shot at like 30 miles an hour, straight down the middle. We'll find historically that might go in like one in a thousand times. Mm -hmm. If you know the keeper has one of those where he scoops it through their own legs and it goes <laughs> in or whatever, some sort of shocker. But nine, yeah, 999 times it's scooped, picked up easy. So they only get a tiny bit of credit for saving that. Rob Green from 2010 and the World Cup came to mind <laughs> yeah. when you said yeah. that. Indeed, that, that, that one will have been a bit more powerful than 30 miles an hour, but yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. Um, and then the, the counter example is always like, well, what if the ball falls to someone eight yards out? Mm -hmm. Um, there's there's a defender stood there so the keeper can't get a great sight of it and they smash it into the top corner at like 70 miles an hour then that goes in 999 times out of a thousand so we're not going to penalize the keeper for conceding that so it's all about looking at every single shot how often they go in and then you can be like ah fine over the course of a season did they save the ones they should like did they save the ones they should have saved did yeah. they concede the ones they should have conceded and then it's those sort of key 50-50 ones. Like, are they a top keeper? Because when they face like a 50-50 shot, are they saving them more often than they're not, et cetera. And over the mm -hmm. course of the season, you can then look and be like, this goalkeeper is worth five goals, six goals in shot stopping. But the main point of goalkeeper XG that we do is we look at every aspect of goalkeeping. So if we start with distribution, um, I'll use the example from Edison's assist against Brighton. Um, so Edison gets the ball, our model will find the ball's at your feet, you're inside your own box as a goalkeeper, you will set up a goal. So as in your pass sequence will result in a goal, mm -hmm. maybe one in a thousand, one in 2,000 times, like if, if you're there, yeah, maybe it's a bit better than that actually, maybe it's like one in 800, but it's 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 close to the to the thousands. But then Edison pings one straight over the top, through ball, Harlan's in one-on-one, -on -one. that will instantly change to like a 35%-er-ish. Mm -hmm. So then instantly you can see Edison, his pass has turned a one in a thousand or whatever into a 35 percenter so then he gains that much due to the pass robert yeah. sanchez does something silly and rushes out which will then increase that from 35 percenter i think to like 75 percenter harlan dribbles it around him and scores so then you can see that on the other end sanchez is then getting penalized because he's attempted a sweep so he would have stopped a 35 percenter but actually he missed the ball so mm. made it worse and turned it into a whatever 75 80 percenter and then so he gets penalized about half a goal does it does it take into consideration uh quality then of the actual individual because obviously you said when the ball's over the top and it yeah. reaches Haaland surely Haaland being on the receiving end would change the probability to much likely to end in a goal yeah. than it would if it's with a full respect like a Nunes or, or indeed someone else in, yeah indeed so it doesn't it takes it into account over the whole average of a Premier League player mm. and the reason for that is if we're scouting Edison and want to know how Edison will do in a different team, we don't want to give him a sort of advantage of yeah. knowing, oh, he's passing it to Haaland. So you won't always so, play with Haaland, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it was knowing that Edison increased the goal probability for an average player by 34% or whatever mm -hmm. it was, um, is really useful because then when we go to like another team, we can then say, I don't know, let's say we were scouting Edison for West Ham or something. We could then look at, okay, West Ham, your goalkeeper does 
all of these passes, like these are the a thousand passes we expect your goalkeeper to try and attempt during a season, this many goal kicks, this many throwouts, blah, blah, blah. We could then say, based on Edison's history, he would turn these into this many chances for your team, etc. And on the other end of the foot, we, if we use the Mendy example where he got tackled against Leeds, like we could be like, your goalkeeper is expected to receive it under pressure 15, 20 times or whatever in the, in the next five games. This is how they've dealt with it historically. Therefore, we expect them to cost you however many goals it is by getting tackled like that or by mm. passing it out for a corner and they score from the corner or, or something like that. So that's the distribution. And then to sort of finally wrap it up, we also do every cross, every through ball looking at, and I guess I highlighted it with the Sanchez one, but every cross and through ball that they come for, like what's the probability of a goal happening if the keeper just like stays on their line, doesn't try and come up for the through ball. And then what is it once they have? Because they might miss it and make it worse like Sanchez did, or they might come flying out sweep a keeper, boot it out for a throw-in in the opposition half, which will only be a, like a half a percent chance of the mm. opposition scoring from that. And they've turned potentially a one-on-one into that, so then they get credit for it. Um, and similar with crosses. So like a corner comes into the box, if it's right on a centre-forward's head, keeper catches it off, they might have stopped like a 25% chance happening. And if, if they've caught it, they've turned it into a 0% chance. It's in their hands now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can, you can evaluate basically every part of a goalkeeper's game using this sort of probability model. And then the fun thing is you can add it all up at the end. So last year, for example, was a really fun one in terms of what our model found. So David De Gea was the best like general shot stopper. So this isn't including one-on-ones, mm. but as in Swiss, like, and I think most people could probably see that from last year's performances that like the reflex save, shots from outside the box, that sort of stuff, like regulation shots where you've got a defender between you and the ball. De Gea was saving my United, I think about 10, 11 goals above mm. average, which is yeah, crazy, really good. His one-on-ones were pretty average and, and certain his penalty stopping was slightly above average last year. So basically overall his shot stopping was like about was that was that was that a better performance overall than the 17 18 season, which was uh, one of the best individual goalkeeping displays over a season I've seen um, in my so life. It, it, I think it was just underneath that, but very mm. similar in terms of the standard. But yeah, that is it was a vintage De Gea shot stopping year. Yeah. But then when we use our model to analyze his handling, through ball sweeping, cross-claiming, and distribution they were all below average, so were costing Man United goals. And actually, De Gea ended up as being like a plus three goals goalkeeper because those were enough to be worth mm-hmm. about seven goals in total. So, And then if we looked at Edison, he was a bang average shot stopper, basically around zero, I think. Maybe he was minus a little bit in like the shot stopping brackets. But his claiming, sweeping and distribution was adding so much to City that he was actually in total worth about four goals. So the interesting thing of our model is we can we can basically look and say, most of the people, if you were just looking at shot stopping or save percentage or whatever silly numbers, you'd be like, wow, De Gea is a much better goalkeeper than Edison. Mm. But actually, holistically, looking at the whole package, you can see, well, actually, they're worth to their two teams. They're both positive. So they're both above average for their teams. They, and they do it in very different ways. But Edison was like a plus four and De Gea only a plus three. So, And probably like a decade or two ago, that would be just in terms of pure shot stopping and, and, and things like that. De Gea, you would say, would offer more to a side where teams weren't yeah. playing out from the back but now obviously the game's moved on so much and especially we didn't I know the new goal kick uh, the goal kick rule came out in 2019 I believe where you pass inside your own areas yeah. so many teams start there now that it's such an important part and last season there was so much debate about De Gea because obviously his shots up and is unbelievable yeah. second to none but then it's on the ball is where he really struggled. And actually, sorry, it wasn't last season. It was, it was when Eric Ten Hag took over because people were saying, if he wants to play up in the back, you can't have a player like De Gea. So it is really interesting. And as you say, he, he's by far a better shot stopper than Ederson, but he actually 
hinders Man United more than Edison hinders Man City because of his distribution, I suppose, last season. Yep, no, indeed. And uh, to be fair to, to De Gea, this season, his distribution numbers have just got gone to being above mm-hmm. average in our model. So he's not like a negative in terms of the, the passing. He's, he's adapted quite well. And his sweeping numbers have moved up to average. It's noticeable so as well on the pitch. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's definitely reacting to the way Ten Hag's playing and mm-hmm. he's improving, which is great, I guess, for my United fans to see. The one thing that's still there, though, is his cross-claiming numbers are still the are still the worst in the league. I think I'll probably, I can probably get the number up now, mm-hmm. but as of the World Cup... It was um, always yeah, a weak side of this of game the, anyway, I think, yeah. claiming crosses. Yeah. As of the World Cup, he's, he's on mi- minus 2.1 goals due to cross-claims mm-hmm. in, in, in our model. The guys at the top are like... Um, Edison, Pope, Fabianski, those sort of guys. I guess that if you do watch them, just try and come for absolutely everything. Really, really good. They're on like plus two goals. Yeah. So it's not nowhere near as big as shot stopping. And I think this is one thing that's super interesting from our model. Like shot stopping ranges in the Prem from maybe like, well, the Hay got a plus 10 season, which was crazy. But normally about plus eight to minus eight is your sort of, if you had the best shot stopper in the league, he'd be worth 16 goals, probably more than the worst. It's that kind of, eight or maybe as high as 10 some season if there's a particularly poor shot stop and a particularly good one and crosses isn't as big as that but he's still a decent amount of goals so yeah for example if you put pope in man united's goal if we're just thinking about cross claiming man united would probably conceded four fewer goals yeah. just because of the extra crosses he's cleaning up so it's a headers never happening a headers mm-hmm. that, yeah that, that could be but yeah it'll be interesting with De Gea to see what man united do with him and how it goes in the end um because, yeah, he looks like he's shot-stopping his back as well. It was a little bit shakier at the start of the season, but the last three games, I think, post the World Cup break, he's been really good. Well, it was after the Brentford match especially. He was at yeah. for three goals, two, at least two anyway. But when, I don't want to say at fault. Maybe yeah, the, the yeah, fourth yeah. one, definitely, I believe, where he went through his legs. But yeah, then... yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's the standard That's the standard one in the model. Of, <laughs> yeah. It isn't always saved because sometimes, like, and it's one of the things with goalkeeping, like a split-second body adjustment or hand thing I think I commented on the the first Brentford goal at the time it's just one of those where if it has gone into his sort of K block as mm-hmm. goalkeeper coaches would like to call it basically cricket long barrier for people who play cricket and scooped it if it had missed it with his hands it would have hit his legs and bounced away but he went for more like a cut more like a wicket keeper got the catch like with his arms out like that and because he did if it goes through your hands and you do that it's in the goal mm-hmm. and it's just one of those tiny decisions of he didn't get his body behind the ball, so he, he, he didn't get bailed out. And that 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 can happen. And it's one of those things of, um, yeah, it was a mistake. And then it's reacting to that and seeing how you can do. And it looks like De Gea has definitely done that in the in, in, in the past few games. And it'll be interesting to see if, if his cross-claiming numbers ever go up or if it's just something Man United have to live with. Because I mm-hmm. think if they can get his sweeping and distribution numbers and his shot speed numbers where they've been, having sort of one weakness out of the sort of main four or five areas of goalkeeping isn't the end of the world and you can mask yeah. it, especially if you've got players like Maguire um, and, and Varane and who are particularly decent in the air and can and can, and can get Well, I mean, you saw that last night because obviously Bournemouth have such uh, mass front physically and, yeah. and obviously they brought yeah. Kiefer Moore on the second half. And, but if the Hay is not going to come out and cross, you do have Harry Maguire there who, who played yeah. for... That reason, I'd imagine, or maybe it was rotation, but yeah, I, maybe I, a bit rotation, maybe rotation. a bit of getting back in the squad. Yeah. yeah, how how um how does I suppose the the physical attributes of a player then weigh into the model? Because if Thibaut Courtois is facing a near post shot against Ilya Melier or even De Gea when he was young and he was quite 
you know, he was quite lean as a player. How does that take into consideration his size then? Because Thibaut Courtois is massive, or even Nick Pope, you know, uh, yeah. giant goalkeepers who can cover, I suppose, more area of the goal when they spread. So what you what you can do is you wouldn't again you wouldn't want to actually include that because you'd want to know if a goalkeeper has a weakness. So the the, mm. the real nice way of doing it is if you do it against this sort of league average average in the Premier League over the past however many years, you can see potentially that oh Nick Pope struggles with shots in and around his feet. That he, actually this season he's done incredibly well against those um, saves his feet. So it's definitely something he's worked on with his with his coach. But like historically, yeah, the bigger keepers, Courtois, Pope, whatever, um, Fraser Forster might struggle with those low shots in and around their feet and adjusting their feet just because they're taller. But similarly, your short keepers like David Raya or whatever might struggle with those shots from outside the box going into the top corners just because mm-hmm. they don't have the reach to get there. Um, so that's definitely something you can probe and have a look at with the, with the model. But what we have found so far is actually at the moment we're not yet really in goalkeeping anyway, at the stage where we can like select for an optimum height or anything. It's not like we can say six foot three is perfect because it allows you to get down to the low ones, but also get up to the high ones. And six foot over six foot three is too big, under six foot three is too small. And the reason for that is because goalkeepers are so different in their like agility qualities and their mental qualities and decision-making qualities and all those things that actually Raya can play in the Premier League really effectively for Brentford, be one of the top keepers in the Premier League at six foot exactly because of how he makes up for it in other qualities and his agility and his power and his spring. And similarly, Pope can play in the Premier League being so big because for six foot seven, he's ridiculously agile, Mm -hmm. uses his feet well, uses his body well, all that sort of stuff that could hinder him. So it's one of those things at the moment, I, for one, wouldn't really ever wanting to, wouldn't ever be wanting to select a goalkeeper based on height because the other qualities at the moment are can can change it massively so i think maybe in the future maybe in like 20 years if all the goalkeepers are very good with their technique selection with they're basically as powerful as possible as athletic as possible then we might start narrowing down and seeing wow all the goalkeepers in the premier league are six foot three exactly or whatever it might be um but at the moment we've got a pretty decent spread from yeah fraser forster being the top yeah and, and, and i suppose you wouldn't want you wouldn't want to fall into a trap either of you know I suppose the best example is if whoever's listened to this podcast, if you don't know already, Lissandra Martinez is five foot nine. You know, it's almost yeah. a, a thing yeah, that yeah, yeah. center halves need or center backs are need to be tall. They need to be physically big, and if they're not, it's seen as a weakness straight away. Whereas I suppose having a nicer spread of goalkeepers in terms of their height and their physical attributes mean that you don't really pinpoint that as much and say tall equals better because. Yeah maybe smaller means more agile whereas taller obviously you can probably I suppose you, you I mean you can you're better at claiming cross etc but yeah. agility wise you would imagine someone maybe smaller would be a bit more agile yep and also sometimes actually for cross claiming the taller goalkeepers over rely on their height so actually they're not as good at reading the crosses because they just expect to walk out and catch it mm-hmm. so can and where's the shorter goalkeepers I remember one season Matty Ryan was one of the best cross claimers in the league even though he's only six foot tall, because he was so good at like running in between the players and reading the cross and making sure he got in front of someone, he had to be really smart with it. So until every goalkeeper in the Premier League is like equally smart with how they move around the goal and make the decisions, there won't really ever be a, a thing about height because, um, yeah, basically, as I said before, we're just not really there yet. When It's not advanced enough in terms of all the goalkeepers being 
exactly as good at each other in all the other aspects that then it comes down to height to decide who will keep out more goals. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the, the, the metrics then, how, how do you, how do you advance them in the future? How are you looking to, I suppose, improve on them? Because yeah, at exactly. the minute, obviously it's quite difficult because it seems almost set in stone, but how would you look to, I suppose, improve that in future and add more into it? So I think, yeah, I think it's all about league coverage and doing it for more leagues. So because our, the data we use is basically the, uh, we, we collect it ourselves and all that sort of stuff. And it's the, it's sort of the most detailed data out there, but because of that, it's sort of time consuming. Mm-hmm. And therefore it's the, the league coverage, we're, 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 we're trying to push it forwards and we're going to be working with lots of different clubs over different leagues in the, in, in the next few months. So that'll be, that, that'll be fun and, and, and interesting but we basically want to expand it on different leagues, different age levels, all that sort of stuff to try and build together a picture of what actually are differences in leagues. Because when we're predicting transfers and things like that, we can get like a, this is the Premier League rate. And if you're not at this rate, you'll probably struggle to fit in. But it'd be nice to sort of see, uh, is there different styles that suit different leagues better? And could you actually make a really good killing and saving in the transfer market? For example, by, I don't know, buying goalkeepers from the Dutch league and putting them in the Spanish league because of the the, the similarity in styles or whatever. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Mm-hmm. Similarly, should we avoid Bundesliga goalkeepers because the style in that league is so unique that actually it's very difficult to judge how they'll translate to a different league? There could be lots of stuff in there like that. So I think for me, yeah, that's the, that's the main one because we do have a great coverage of all the different... Um, areas of goalkeeping and also the detail on an individual event we have we have more than anyone else it's just about expanding that basically mm-hmm. yeah and even from a, a coaching point of view it seems so logical to use these kind of stats especially for like uh, goalkeeping coaches if you're coaching your goalkeeper and you say in this situation you should use this met this technique and they say why and you can simply yeah. just say well, it changes from a 20% chance of or the yeah. goal going into 60. It seems so, but, um, and I hope it doesn't take away from the work you've done, but it does seem so obvious. Yeah, it was like, why hasn't, why is this only coming really to the forefront now? So many clubs have just kind of, I suppose not, I suppose neglected maybe is is a, the best word to use, although it's not maybe fair, yeah, but you know. I, I guess it's just because, to be honest, like most clubs don't have like a full team of analysts. They normally have one or two people doing it. Mm-hmm. And you've got, if you've got in a team of 11, 10 of them doing quite similar things with quite similar metrics in terms of the running and all the other stats that they first started using, because they really, the first stats to be used wasn't like event data. It was more about physical performance and fitness data. So I think going from that style and end, a club would never really hire their own goalkeeper analyst, because if you sign one goalkeeper, like whenever my United signed a Gea in like 2010 or 2012, whatever it was, like they've not needed to sign a new goalkeeper in mm-hmm. however many years. So why would they be paying someone's salary every single time, similar for all other clubs? So it feels like it's just something that's sort of naturally neglected because the, the goalkeeper sort of goes away on his own, on his own with, with the other goalkeepers, with the goalkeeper coach. And normally when I've worked with clubs and gone in with them, it's like, the goalkeeper coach does some stats, some like rough stats, the, the performance of their keeper, but they don't really know how that affects across the league because they're yeah. only looking at, at, at their keeper and trying to make their keeper better. So I think it's one of the big advantages and one of the things we do at Goalkeeper XG is we do have full educational courses and full statistical courses looking at, okay, let's look at corners and where should keepers stand to optimize mm-hmm. where they need to be uh, to claim X, Y, and Z crosses. And then 
one-on-ones, like we said before, like what decisions should your keeper be making to, over the course of a season, save more one-on-ones than they'd be expected to? Because still we see in the Premier League, keepers don't make the optimum decision every every time. That's why on Twitter, I'll always post, if a keeper makes a really good decision or a really bad decision, I'll, I'll do both. I don't want to be biased either way. I'll just put up a quick stat of, oh, wow, what saved De Gea? He turned a, whatever it was, 35% into a 15%. Or it might be, oh, no, what a nightmare from A, another goalkeeper. They turned a 30% mm-hmm. into a 70% or whatever. So it's one of those things I think goalkeeper coaches will find really useful. And we've had lots of lots of people contacting us and it's all just about getting it all yeah. um, sorted and setting up some big sessions, which I think we're going to have planned over the, over mm-hmm. the, the coming summer to get lots of goalkeeper coaches in a room and um, yeah, sh- show them how useful this can be. Cause I think it's something they've been crying out for, but just in the, as we mentioned at the start in the day-to-day churn of football, it just feels like there's not enough time for yeah. people to do a million different roles. And I think that's why it's sort of been neglected, but that's why we're sort of here to fill in that gap and to, mm-hmm. you don't need to hire a goalkeeper analyst. You can, we can come into your club for whatever, a few months, a year, whatever it needs to be help you in the transfer market, help you get the best out of your keeper. And then we can go and, and, and work with you again if you need us in a few a few years. But it doesn't have to be a thing where mm. you need to hire a guy for every single position. Yeah. And well, uh, just in terms of like, especially at, at the elite level, so many clubs are trying to gain an advantage. So you see like Thomas yeah. Grottemark, the throwing coach, he was hired yeah. by Liverpool, he was hired by Mitchell and the, a couple of national teams as well, teams in the MLS, etc. to work with them. You have, we interviewed Sammy Lander on this podcast, who was a substitutions coach. And now I know for a fact he's had a lot of interest from top clubs looking to, I suppose, as I said, gain an edge, even if it's small margins. The same with set-piece coaches have become way more mainstream now. It seems obvious that clubs will eventually turn and say, we want a goalkeeper analyst to help us improve our goalkeepers. It's not just your main goalkeeper. I mean, you have multiple goalkeepers in your squad, so we come in and help them and coach them. So I think the work you're doing is is genuinely amazing. And I also love how on social media, when a goalkeeper, say, does make an error, something we would conceive as an error, I always see people tweet you and ask you your thoughts. And it's like you're the, the go-to <laughs> yeah. guy to see to, to, to back up whether a goalkeeper should have saved it or not. Um, the last topic I want to talk about was the World Cup, but just before uh, we do, Jamie Carragher used your models, your metrics on Monday Night Football. How did that feel? That, that should have, I mean, that must have felt amazing. No, that was great. That was my sort of first, like, I guess, big break into the mainstream. Because obviously, yeah. like you said, like, decent amount of people follow me on Twitter. So from from Twitter, a lot of people like interact with me and ask for my opinion. And and I've and I chatted with quite a few football clubs just based mm-hmm. on my Twitter stuff. So that 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 was all going great. But I guess it was all sort of a bit more underground. So yeah, when when Jamie and the team at Sky contacted me and was like, we've looked at the other stats providers, no one has anything on one-on-ones. I'm seeing Alison say one-on-ones every week. Surely someone must have the data of how important yeah. this is to Liverpool. And I was like, yeah, I do. Uh, I, can, <laughs> I, I can show you that if you want. Yeah, obviously he's top of the league at the moment for one-on-ones. He's like plus nine goals or whatever it was. Because like Carragher's eyes weren't wrong. Like he was watching every week Liverpool concede one or two one-on-ones. Mm-hmm. And basically the majority of the time, I think it was something like, I think he was on like a 68 or 70% save ratio at one-on-ones. Yeah. And they're about... 50-50s basically one-on-one so that was like outrageous and hence yeah plus nine goals so yeah the fact he saw that and then wanted to use the stats was was great and yeah I know the people at Sky were it was really easy um I just had to provide them with all the data and the graph Mm -hmm. and like a graphic idea and stuff like that and they they put it all together so no that was that was very fun 
and it was a little bit tense like the story of it because it was the last segment before it went to the crystal palace leeds game so they were like oh john by the way it might get cut like if we spend too long talking about something else like that's yeah, the yeah, bit yeah. that gets cut because we just go to the ad break anyway and the game will start so I was like nervously watching, they like, are they going to get to my bit? And Jamie was talking about like Virgil van Dijk and like his defending and the high line. And I was like, are we going to get there? We're going to get there. And then eventually they did. And, it was, and I expected them just to pop up the graphic yeah. and be like, yeah, this is this is some data from John Harrison. And this is what it says. Yeah, Alison's great one-on-ones. But then they, they actually sort of gave me a full shout out and like discussed that I was a PhD student at Cambridge and like, uh, yeah, Jamie shouted and called me John Boy and stuff like that. So yeah, it was, it was really fun. <laughs> but I, I just, yeah. I think it's amazing though, because it, 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 it shows you what, what I said at the start of the podcast, that it seems so, like Jamie Carragher and Sky, they're looking for this yeah. kind of stuff. It seems so obvious that like why... As you said, they contact you saying, "Why can't I find numbers on Allison's yeah. online ones?" It seems like if you're analysing Allison, especially Carragher was a centre back, Gary Neville was a right back, or whoever else was on the, the show, they weren't goalkeepers. So why isn't that date available? And that's why it's it's amazing that you guys, obviously, and yourself, put so much work in. You have these kind of numbers to 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 back it up, and I just think it's revolutionary in the game, which of course is must feel great for you to be a part of as well. Um, I just want to touch on the World Cup then for the last few minutes of the, the podcast. You wrote a piece for goalkeeper.com during the World Cup. I believe it was after uh, Argentina beat Nether- the Netherlands in the quarters. I think, I think so, yeah, yeah. I think it was just early in the knockout phase. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, was, was, I mean, Croatia and Argentina obviously both got very far in the World Cup through penalty shootouts and obviously yeah. Argentina ended up winning on penalty shootouts. Um, could you tell the listeners about the piece then that you wrote and kind of if if they haven't read it already on goalkeeper goalkeeper you absolutely showed it. it's it's brilliant. Um, but there was a couple of of points you touched on in the piece, such as like our goalkeepers getting better at penalty savings, um, are saving penalties. Sorry, are I suppose maybe centre forwards getting worse at taking penalties? How has VAR yeah. helped them? Was the World Cup just an anomaly? Things like that. Yeah. So basically the. For people who didn't know, it might have gone unnoticed. I don't think it was publicised that much in the media, but um, at one point, um, the goalkeepers, I think, were saving something like 32%, I think, of all Mm. on-target penalties. The usual sort of going rate is like 18%. So, like, that was crazy. That was, like, close to double the amount of penalties were being saved than usually would. So, at that point, I sort of wrote a piece on it, and I was like, I'm pretty sure some of this is just goalkeepers being in form, and it's a small sample size, because at World Mm. Cup, in the end... There was only like 64 penalties taken in a World Cup, so a pretty small sample. In the end, it cooled off and it dropped down to um, 25%. But that's still, the 25% was still a, like a record high for, um, for World Cups. Um, and uh, yeah, it's usually about 18%. Um, so the, yeah, the analysis I did, I was like, okay, why have so many been saved at this World Cup? Um, what has caused that? And then when I looked, I was like, oh, last World Cup, there was the second highest ever penalty saved. There was like 23% saved. And I was like, okay, this is a bit, this is a bit weird. Um, could it have had something to do with VAR? So I, mm. I first sort of dug into it. I was like, ah, could there have just been more shootouts? Because as we all know, you don't have your first choice taker take every single penalty in a shootout. So a shootout conversion rate of an on-target penalty is lower than a regular penalty. Because obviously during a, whatever we look at, Premier League season, World Cup, it's your first choice taker hitting every penalty. So they're going to be 
putting them away at a decent rate. Whereas in a shootout, you're going all the way to number two, three, four, and five of your of your country. And that couldn't explain it. So if I've just got the numbers here, um, basically in the World Cup before VAR was introduced, so going back to 1982, when penalty shootouts were first a thing, like you see in-game penalties going in about 12% of the time and shootout penalties, sorry, being saved about 12% of the time and shootout penalties being saved about 23% of the time. And then in the post-VAR era, the in-games jumped to like 19% and the shootout has jumped to a massive 29%. So mm. I, yeah, there is this difference and it's not just because we're seeing more shootouts now where we're having worse takers take them. There's actually a genuine sort of difference, a jump from your 18% to your 25%. So it's what's happened here. And yeah, at Goalkeeper XG, we've got a model that looks at the power and the placement of the penalty and sees how likely it is to go in. Because obviously if you put a penalty like Maguire did in the Euros, top bins at like 65 miles an hour that's never getting saved ever mm. ever ever that, that's 100 percent. and Messi did one in the in the world cup semi-final against croatia as well just rocked up banged it top corner 60 yeah. miles an hour not getting saved whereas you then chance it a little bit if you try and like roll it down the middle at like 40 miles an hour or like try and penenka it or just side foot it pretty weakly not near the corner you're going to drop your odds from there and mm. like some of the worst penalties you can drop it down to maybe like 60 percent if you do like a tame side foot slightly to one of the sides. Um, so we looked at that and we found that could explain some of it. So if we just think about this World Cup 2022, there were 64 penalties. You'd have expected just based on historic penalties, about 50 goals from that sample. But, and actually we only got 43. So there were seven goals somewhere. Like somehow goalkeepers have saved seven more goals than they should. How do we explain that? Um, and Basically, when you look at the placement, that can account for about four of them. And I think people watching the penalties will realise there were some quite poor penalties at this World Cup, quite tame side foot, pretty central. And that can explain about four, but we still have these three goals left. So how do we explain goalkeepers saving three more goals than they should in this kind of small 64 sample? Um, and that's where, like you said, the, my point about VAR came in. I was like, I don't think it's really a hot streak anymore because we saw it spike up to whatever it was, 32, 33% before it eventually dropped down to, yeah, 26, 27 um, at this World Cup anyway. So I think the hot streak sort of can be ruled out a little bit. And then we've taken into account bad placement and bad power and we've got these guys left over. And I think it's probably due to VAR actually helping keepers. So by forcing them to stay on their line, because mm -hmm. we know it happened to Lloris, didn't it? If you jump off your line before the penalty is taken, it'll get blown up every time now. You yeah. can have a little bit of a margin for error. And that was always a rule, though, but it was never yeah, it was enforced. Rule, which people, but, like, yeah. When I actually uh, was writing questions for this, I wrote down um, to ask you about that, and I said the new rule that was brought in. But it, it, I had yeah. to stop myself and say, it was not a yeah. new rule. It's always been a rule. It was just never enforced. And yeah. I, I mean, the best example was Jersey Dudek in 2005. Yeah. Uh, yeah I yeah. mean, he's he's <laughs> nearly outside the box. Yeah, it's really <laughs> outside the six <laughs> box. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Yeah, something did sort of need to be done. Yeah. about that because yeah well i think once you get to dudex level it's probably an advantage but the interesting thing was i've always looked at it and thought just jumping like one yard off your line is probably a disadvantage because you're losing a bit of reaction time and you don't actually cut off that much extra mm -hmm. of the goal if you're like five six yards out yes you're now cutting off enough of the goal that it's worth it but refs have got more strict on that i don't think jersey dudek would have been allowed even pre-var these days um but the sort of what Lloris did in against Poland, where it's like the jump forwards one yard off your line and then try and dive. It was always to me a bad idea because it felt like you're cutting reaction time and not gaining much in terms of the angle. And also by doing the jump forwards motion, it then made it hard to go to either side. Yeah. It sort of upset your dive rhythm. 
So I, I was thinking initially, hmm, yeah, maybe it could be VARs help keepers because one, they don't go as early. And we noticed with Achoa and Jan Sommer, Sommer wasn't at the World Cup, but it was, I think, in a, in a Bundesliga game. Because now you're staying sort of just behind your line, you can throw and feint to go one side. And if they do the Bruno Fernandes, Jorginho, Lewandowski-style mm-hmm. penalty, they're going to look up at that moment and be like, ah, the keeper's going that way, go to the other side. But you were just throwing your weight there. You're behind yeah. the line and you can go the other way. So it, it basically makes them stand up for longer, which makes it harder and for takers, easier for golfers to save it. And also it makes their dive technique much more sort of fluid and allows them to get proper power step in and push out and get to the side. Whereas I think the sort of weird place we got to with goalkeepers on penalties was, oh, I need to jump forwards and then dive. And I think that was sort of messing up their rhythm and making them go too early. And it was making it all a bit too obvious. So I think maybe we can see at the next World Cup or I can have a look at all of the Euros post VAR and things Mm -hmm. like that and try and get a big sample size of this. But it does look like VAR maybe has helped goalkeepers. A lot of people thought it'd hinder them because they weren't allowed to. Yeah, well, it, it would seem that they hindered them because yeah. obviously it just makes sense that if you step forward, you close the angle out. Like, obviously, in Jersey Dudek's case, when you're like a yard yes. from the ball, obviously it does, it, it, you know, yeah, it does. It does help. Yeah. But when you explain that, it, it seems so logical that, yeah, you, you are only gaining maybe a yard. And okay, if you're maybe a, a huge goalkeeper like uh, Nopperton for the Netherlands, yeah. it might yeah. help you a little bit more. But if, Whereas if you're say five eleven five not ten as a keeper, yeah, you're, re- you're not really, you know, yeah. closing the angle off that much. Rather, and as you said, when you step forward, it's harder for you to dive then left and right. So it's you are at a disadvantage. That makes complete sense. Yeah. So I have I have looked at how it's gone in the Premier League, but but COVID has sort of been a bit weird with this. Yeah. So in the Premier League, the the save rate sort of since two thousand is about seventeen percent. So very similar to like the eighteen percent mm-hmm. you find in the World Cup. So it's all much of a muchness. And then, but and post VAR, it actually drops to 15%. But when I looked at this, it's just that season where there was no fans. And then this was a super interesting thing about that. So w- when you take out the no fans season, it goes back up to 17. So at the moment in the Premier League, it looks like the VAR strict enforcement of penalties has made no difference. So we haven't seen that increase we saw in the World Cup, which I guess is interesting. Again, was, was just... that COVID season because of, I know they had a new rule at the start of that season where it was any part of your body if it hits the hand it's a penalty so there was way more yes, penalties being that, given that's at the, the start way more penalties it's more yeah. way more penalties and no fans in the stadium so then that made me think I, I wanted to have a look at the date and see were the takers just hitting better penalties is yeah. it not that the keepers got worse in that season it's just that under no pressure the takers could just rock up and smash it in the corner yeah it's probably easier to score a penalty at the cop end with no fans than it is if there's yeah. it's a packed out stadium exactly yeah. so that's one interesting thing and obviously the good thing about all of these methods is like it will it, only time will tell what's going on. Like I think I've genuinely got a theory of why VAR might have helped goalkeepers get better at penalties because it's forcing mm. them to wait for longer and dive with proper technique. But yeah, so far we haven't seen that effect in the Premier League. And yeah, actually there's a weird VAR season in uh, in there due to the the no fans. So yeah, it's not something I would like 100% say is definitely happening. Yeah. But we saw it in the World Cup. And I'd say we can't explain the World Cup one by poor placement of penalties, more penalty shootouts happening um, or anything like that. It looks like mm-hmm. there was genuinely some better goalkeeping. And yeah, that could just be an anomaly. And we just saw Bonu and Martinez be amazing goalkeeper and, and Livakovic yeah. um, be amazing goalkeepers. And it was just a one-off or it could generally be the new rule has really helped them because they sat down with their goalkeeper coaches and been like, right, 
I'm not allowed to jump off my line. I'm not allowed to do this. We need to get like a, a watertight method of, of saving penalties together. And clearly that's that's worked for them. And it'll be interesting. Will strikers adjust now? Will the stuttered run-up sort of stop? And they sort of go back to the, well, more Harry Kane style. Obviously it didn't work for him mm-hmm. for the second penalty, but the Kane style of I'm always going to try and hit it across the keeper into that top corner. I know you'll never save it if I get it right. And I guess the Alan Shearer style of penalties as well of just run up, bang it, that place, mm. and you'll never save it. Because we have sort of veered away from that as being the standard for a good penalty taker and it all being about deception and decoying with Hazard, Bruno Fernandes and Jorginho sort of making it famous, the slow run up Mm -hmm. and then the keeper's gone, I'll just roll it the other side. So no, penalties are super interesting and we'll we'll see where that goes. And I think in terms of just goalkeeping, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't as a keeper because if you save it, it's a poor penalty. If yeah. you get if you don't if you go the right way and don't save it, you it's a you know, a poor technique from you. So I just think again, it's just one of those um just black and white and uh, I think it's one analysis. of those that needs more yeah. like explanation because like sometimes like it is genuinely true, you know, the good height for a goalkeeper for a penalty. Mm-hmm. Goalkeepers save it more often if it's not on the ground and not high, if it's in that middle band. So that is true. But saying good height for a goalkeeper when they save something that's maybe got a twenty percent save probability mm-hmm. it's like yes if it was lower it'd have been 10 percent, and if it was higher it might have been like two percent save probability mm-hmm. so indeed it is true that it's a good hyper keeper but at the same time don't use that to disparage a keeper who's just saved a shot that would be expected to be going 80 yeah. percent of the time it's like you can credit them as well as explaining to the viewers that penalties hit in that middle band are easier to save because obviously you that that is the height a goalkeeper's diving at. They don't have to get down and they don't have to get up. They can just go across. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just another classic case of um, there's a grain of truth in what they're saying, but there's there's a nuance to it of it's still a huge save and that you yeah. can't just there there is a grain of truth, but it's almost like when you're when you're your dad makes a prediction on the, you know at yeah. the football and he's and he's yeah, yeah, right yeah. but he has no reason as to why he's right he correct just gets it right correct. just off chance it, it's kind of frustrating and correct. you want him you want him to be wrong but he's not but he has yeah. no reason as to why he's right this <laughs> is that kind of yeah, um, exactly, exactly that kind of issue john genuinely this was a, a an absolutely wonderful chat i i knew i'd learned so much when you came on so thank you so much for coming on giving, <laughs> oh, us, your, giving us your time um where can people find you yeah so twitter is obviously the main one so at jhd harrison one um on there and then, yeah, we're doing loads of articles and things on goalkeeper.com mm-hmm. and we'll continue to do throughout the the sort of the Premier League season and into the summer. I think there's going to be lots of coverage of the transfer window if the sort of yeah. goalkeeper roulette starts up of <laughs> that standard thing of if one goalkeeper moves, then the other team needs to replace yeah. their keeper and then it starts a big cycle. So there'll be yeah, loads of coverage of that. So yeah, on goalkeeper.com and then on on, on Twitter, um, yeah. at my handle is the, probably the best place to see all the content I'm putting out. And well, that as well. But obviously, goalkeeper.com is, is genuinely a, a fantastic website. Um, so thank you for coming on again, John. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. Make sure to tune in on Monday as Brian and I have another episode of TFA Scouted for you. And make sure to write the podcast too and share it with your followers, friends, family, as it really helps us grow. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>